Communications is not just part of the game, it is the game. As a startup, for example, um, I like to say that communications is the great equalizer. You can be a, uh, a $1 million or $10 million startup, um, and if you have really creative and impactful communications, um, you can achieve the same level of visibility in the marketplace uh, as a company that's maybe worth billions of dollars. call him a connoisseur in communication, but I'll leave that to them to decide. Uh, welcome to the AOU podcast, where we talk about entrepreneurial leadership in Africa. My name is Savannah Olo, and I'm your guide through getting these gems of knowledge that we drop here every week. If you feel like the content resonates with you, or you might have picked a gem or two with you, do not hesitate to like, share, and comment, and maybe tell us about what you think of the guests that we bring on. Remember that this content is curated for you as our listeners so find us on various platforms but to be duly updated on when we upload episodes every week do follow us on instagram at aou education today's guest um brings out the most of what we need to do in times of crisis when it comes to communication. So in terms of crisis, we always need a sense of assurance that the situation is under control. And this is where our guest today comes in. He ensures that the message you receive does what it needs to do for you. Jim Olson, for 25 years, has been the forefront of telling some of the most compelling business and social impact stories of our lifetime. Along the way, he has helped lead global brands, including Starbucks, United Airlines, U.S. Airways, Nissan Motors, Yahoo, and Boeing, just to mention a few, through periods of immense growth, transformation, and disruption. So he currently resides in Mauritius, where he's helping empower a new generation of leaders as an executive in residence and chief communications officer at AOU. This is by far the latest calling in his purpose-inspired career. Um, we might get to touch on that in a few that spans 50 countries across three, six continents. Sorry. So uh, welcome, first of all. Um, so, um, early on in your career, you led Nissan's digital strategy, including creating its first corporate website, online newsroom and employee internet. How challenging was this, um, given the internet was barely a few days old in the business world then? Well, first, Vanna, thank you for having me on, uh, on the program. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. And, uh, let me just begin by first letting folks know that my heart goes out to everyone who's been touched by this entire situation. Um, it's uh, impacting our whole world, uh, right. and um, it's, I think, a humbling experience for, for everybody. Um, to answer your question, um, as I rewind the clock back to uh, the very beginning of my career and, and the experience and that, uh, um, I think, important time uh, in business in our world as the um, World Wide Web was coming to fruition, uh, it, was, it was a double-edged uh, sword uh, of a period. Um, on the one hand, there were many uh, old school leaders, uh, as I call them, that uh, that didn't understand what was happening. And uh, to be frank, many of them didn't want to understand it or make an effort to understand it. Right. Uh, I can recall a uh, senior executive at the ad agency I was working at at the time 
who called the internet the CB radio of the 90s. Oh. <laughs> um, so uh, trying to persuade some of these non-internet uh, believers was like trying to, in some ways, explain to uh, someone who uh, felt the world was flat uh, that it's actually round. Um, on the other hand, it was uh, also probably uh, one of the most exciting periods of, of my career. Uh, uh, those who understood what was uh, unfolding at the time were uh, in many ways considered uh, visionaries and, and experts right. um, at a very young age. I was at the time uh, only 24, 25 years old, uh, very just starting out my career. And so to be uh, looked upon by uh folks uh, who were more mature and farther along in their careers and senior executives who did see the future, uh, it was a uh, very exciting time to be only, again, 24, 25 uh, and be sitting in boardrooms with CEOs and other leaders who were trying to understand what was going on. Wow. Um, I can see you took a challenge and turned it into an opportunity right there. Um, It's it's great to see how you did that, though. Um, So... 2008 was one of the most turbulent economic periods in the commercial aviation um, industry. As VP of Corporate Communications at U.S. Airways at that time, how did you go through these times, these tough times, for example, communicating changes, dealing with restructuring, labor relations, and employee layoffs? Yeah, so um, first I think it's important to acknowledge that 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 period of, of 2008 to 2011 and the, the Great Recession that uh, um, the U.S. and many other parts of the world we're going through, um, I think now in hindsight, um, uh, that pales in comparison to what our world uh, is going through today. Yeah. Uh, and especially for um, the airline industry. Um, many of us at that period who were working in the air industry um, uh, you know, believe that that period was um, probably one of the most devastating um, times for the airline industry. But um, again, uh, what we're going through now and the, the the devastating impact that it's having on airlines and the travel industry around the world, um, uh, you can't even compare the uh, can't even compare the period. So my heart goes out to all of my former colleagues and and everyone, yeah. uh, all the great aviation professionals that uh, work around the world in that space. It's it's a many of them are losing their jobs, um, and um, uh, and are. The ones that are still flying are, are in many ways heroes still be flying uh, planes under these um, uh, under these conditions right now. Um, but all that said, it was still a very challenging period. Right. Um, fuel prices were uh, at historic historic highs. Uh, the economy was collapsing under our feet, so uh, many people and businesses were uh, cutting back on their uh, their travel significantly. Um, and so I think in all, you know. This situation uh, and and all kinds of situations like it, um, uh, it's it's critical that that companies and leaders um, uh, lead with a uh, sense of humanity and transparency, uh, and that's certainly what we tried to do at U.S. Airways when I was there at the time, um, in terms of how we engaged our uh, employees. Okay. Um, it was important to be honest with folks about um, where things stood and the the difficult decisions we were having to. Uh, make um, for our teams and for our our, our customers and our business, um, but it was equally important to give our stakeholders, including our employees, hope uh, that we were making um, the right decisions that would position uh, the airline to not only survive uh, but actually to thrive as we came out uh, the other side of this, this this situation. So, like, sort of giving them a sense of assurance that the situation's under control, right? Yeah, that's under control. That it's difficult. 
um, and that uh, that uh, we understand the uh, the pain and 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 uh, the hardship that many of the decisions uh, that not only our airline but other airlines and companies had to make at that uh, that time right. uh, that people were having to um, undergo, um, but at the same time. Um, uh, trying to you know over communicating and trying to explain um, the reasons why some of these decisions were having to be made. When you have uh, fuel prices approaching record highs, um, you uh, have to um, uh, sometimes get creative and do difficult things okay. uh, to um, uh, ensure the survivability of the airline. Definitely. Okay, so with that said, is there a framework for uh, managing a crisis? Because you served as an advisor on the broad range of issues like aircraft accidents, severe weather conditions, and what have you. Um, the crisis response you led following the 2009 crash of flight uh, 1549 in New York City, um, icy Hudson River, is recognized um, as a model in crisis contemporary management. So maybe you can share some key points that you learned from there or if there's actually a framework for managing such a crisis. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that that experience. Uh, we uh, actually, a lot of people called that uh, that accident um, the miracle on the Hudson. Right. <laughs> uh, we had a, uh, we, you know, we and lots of, and, and all airlines have uh, very buttoned up crisis plans, uh, but none of us had a miracle plan. Right. And so, um, uh, but all of the same uh, factors uh, and, uh, and preparation uh, is still required, whether it's a, a, a miracle or a, a tragedy. Um, but nonetheless, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, as, com- as, um, as communicators, uh, I think when there's a, uh, a time of crisis in that situation and others, um, there's a, a simple protocol that, uh, that you can follow. Um, and it's actually the same. It's very similar, and, and it's drawn from the, proto- the safety protocol that pilots are trained to use uh, when something goes wrong yeah. and catastrophically wrong with their airplane, uh, when it's in the when it's in the air or taking off or landing, uh, and that protocol is based on uh, four key factors. Okay. Uh, first, aviating. Uh, first and foremost, pilots are taught to always keep the plane uh, flying and not get distracted. If you look at most accidents that uh, happen. Uh, with aircraft, where they be on the ground or in the air, ninety uh, percent of them are caused by pilot distraction. They're they're working on they're fiddling with something else or another issue uh, that may be a symptom of a bigger issue, or it may not even be related to flying the plane. Uh, and before they know it, um, something catastrophic happens. So first and foremost, um, just as pilots have to keep the plane in the air and flying, um, as leaders, we need to keep our organizations. Uh, and our businesses and our universities um, and our countries, if you're a political leader, um, up in the air and flying yeah. and not be distracted by um, some of the symptoms that sometimes result from uh, a crisis. Sully did that in the uh, Flight 1549 accident that you're talking about. Okay. Uh, the minute the birds hit the plane um, and knocked out both engines as the plane was still you know, climbing into the sky only about two minutes into the flight, um, he didn't panic. Right. He did what great pilots are trained to do. He put the nose down um, to try to regain momentum. He turned the plane into a glider. Um, And so that was the right thing to do. If he had not put the nose down immediately as he had done, um, there was it was very likely that plane would have gone into a a stall and had catastrophic results. So he aviated. The second uh, important uh, protocol uh, in any crisis is to navigate. Okay. Uh, You've got to 
um, understand where you are and then where you're going. Just like a pilot and just like Sully in that, uh, in that situation uh, in January 2009, um, he took stock of where the plane was over Manhattan and then identified um, potential airports uh, to land the plane at. In Sully's case, the only safe place to land the plane was ditching it in the Hudson River. And that was ultimately the right decision. Everyone survived uh, that, um, uh, that incident. The same is true in business. When you're going through a, uh, a crisis, um, the worst thing you can do uh, once you have the, uh, um, the situation stabilized is to not think about where you're gonna go next. Um, you can't just put your guard down and think that the crisis is over. You need to constantly be thinking about what your next move is. Um, where are you gonna safely land your organization to have the, the least amount of impact on your employees or your customers or your, uh, or your operation? And then finally, um, uh, you need to communicate. Mm. Um, and you need to communicate in a crisis decisively, honestly, frequently, and with empathy. Right. And um, important thing is that I go back to aviating. If you don't first aviate in any of these situations, um, no matter how good of a communicator or no matter how good of a navigator you are, it's not going to matter if the plane crashes. So uh, for leaders of all kinds, um, the, 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 the guidance is um, aviate, aviate first. Um, Sully didn't communicate with the passengers or the crew in the back of the plane until after he had figured out he was going to land on the, land the plane on the Hudson River. And it was at that point, after he had aviated, after he had navigated, yeah. that's when he came on the intercom and said, this is your captain, brace for impact. And finally, um, it's, it's critical, just like pilots, to be prepared. Pilots go through simulations, through training. Um, companies need to do the same kind of uh, crisis management preparation and readiness efforts. Uh, I like to say that, uh, and I've lived through a lot of crisis situations and high, highly visible ones, um, it's not the crises that are stressful. Not being prepared is stressful. Right, yeah, definitely. I could see how that could um, come into play, that it, failure to plan is sort of uh, a plan to fail. Exactly. That's a, that I, I would totally, uh, uh, totally agree. So preparation... Um, sometimes it's an inconvenience to do these crisis readiness and preparations drills um, because it takes time out of people's busy schedules and there's always seems to be something more important than preparing for something that's uh, uh, unimaginable. Right. Um, but, um, but you'll be thankful uh, that you did and you'll learn a lot of lessons before you have to learn them the hard way. Right. Well, great. Um, so there seems to be a trend in the kind of companies that you work with or the caliber of companies that you work with. Um, you are the VP of global, you're the VP of global corporate um, communications at Starbucks, and it ranked fifth the mo of the most admired company in the world and ranked as one of the most innovative company by Fast Company. Um, that's the same caliber of company that you're working with as, at the moment, um, AOU. How essential is a corporate communication strategy and a business news agenda um, key to startups' growth and recognition? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I worked for a uh, CEO uh, for a while, and he had a great philosophy. He used to say that communication is not just part of the game, it is the game. And I think that's true for any size organization uh, any organization in any industry, um, and whether you're working for a publicly traded company, a private company, or uh, a university, um, 
communications is central uh, to your success and your leadership. Right. As a startup, for example, um, I like to say that communications is the great equalizer. You can be a uh, a $1 million or $10 million startup, um, and if you have really creative and impactful communications, um, you can achieve the same level of visibility in the marketplace uh, as a company that's 10 years, 20, 30, even 50 years older than you, uh, and that's maybe worth billions of dollars. Yeah. Um, and so communications is a, a, a great way uh, to equalize your reputation and elevate your reputation to um, to play at the same you know to play on the same stage uh, or on the same field uh, as, uh, as as other organizations um, that have been uh, um, playing the game for for, for years. Um, it's also a great equalizer with employees. Um, communications and engage, communicate communications and uh, employee engagement. Again, is a another great equalizer. Where um, look at what we're doing at ALU and at uh, uh, ALX and across the AL organization, okay. we're attracting some of the the brightest uh, and most innovative innovative talent from across Africa and around the world. Um, and there are certainly much bigger, uh, more prominent universities uh, that uh, a lot of these people. Um, uh, you know, staff and faculty could go uh, work for, um, but they're they're choosing um, ALU, they're choosing uh, ALX, they're choosing ALA, um, uh, not because it's the the biggest or the or- oldest uh, educational institution uh, in the world, mm-hmm. um, but precisely because of the uh, uh, the innovation uh, and the uh, the impact that we're making, and then ultimately that that's being projected. Uh, around the world, uh, in large part through communications and public relations. All right. So in that same breath, what's your story behind joining AOU? I mean, it's a young and yet transformative in- in institution. Um, you've worked for like very big brands. So what drew you to AOU exactly? Yeah. So um, I turned 50 last year. And when I um, stepped down uh, from my post as the chief communications officer at United Airlines, right. um, I was ready to... Uh, in, in many ways, to stop fueling my ambition and start fuel, refueling my soul. Okay. Um, I didn't know what that opportunity was going was going to be. I set up a consulting firm uh, and uh, worked on a variety of different projects and served as an interim CEO uh, at an organization. Um, and so it wasn't until uh, about exactly a year ago that I read the Fast Company article about ALU and about Fred um, that ALU uh, popped onto my radar. Right. Um, and it was at that point I knew this was it. It was like a, a light bulb going off uh, in my head. I had set up the situation and the conditions to keep my eyes open for this kind of opportunity. Um, and it literally, um, uh, it literally landed in my lap as I was reading uh, this article. Um, and I knew I wanted to do this because 20 years ago I had come to uh, – I'd gone to Kenya uh, to uh, um, work on a my capstone project for my MBA okay. at a, a nonprofit school in Eldoret, uh, and I promised myself, and I was only about thirty years old at the time. I promised myself that I would uh, make it back to Africa to uh, make even a bigger impact. 
I didn't know when it would be. I didn't know where it would be. It took me uh, 20 years to, to ultimately make it back. But as the saying goes, you can leave Africa, but Africa never really leaves you. <laughs> That's and, very uh, true. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I heard the calling and I, I answered it. And, um, and I think most importantly, um, it was the, you know, we're talking about communication and stories. And right. um, I love telling stories. And as I l- dug in uh, and started to learn more about ALU, uh, and um, the mission uh, that we were on, um, it was just, it was too compelling uh, and too rich of a story, too important of a story um, not to be part of. Right. And so I think that, um, and it's over the last year that I've been working with um, the uh, African Leadership Organization, um, that's come to fruition. It's, uh, uh, it's not only an important story for us to tell about ALU and for ALU's sake, um, but it's a story that needs to be told for Africa, and, and there's a need to shift um, the narrative um, uh, that currently exists about Africa from, in many cases, you know, what's, uh, what's wrong with Africa to an exciting uh, what's next. And uh, too big of an important story um, uh, not to join. Right. Okay. So, um, speaking of social, speaking of impact, and also telling compelling stories, uh, why do you think it's relevant for young entrepreneurs on the continent to tell compelling business and societal impact stories at this point in time? And just maybe to follow up on that, how do you craft a compelling story? So maybe you could start with why you think it's relevant to be telling such stories. Yeah. Well. Um... First of all, I think that uh, Africa is at a critical inflection point. Right. And I like to say that sometimes the, uh, the best inflection points, uh, as hard as they may be or as challenging as they may see, are, are also great reflection points. Okay. And in many cases, the best stories emerge from times of reflection. Um, and I think uh, for all of us who are... are um, working here in Africa, especially uh, young leaders and young entrepreneurs, um, it's just an an incredible time to be telling um, the stories of possibility and also to tell the stories of of consequence. Um, These are the the stories of of leaders and young leaders and and the small businesses uh, on the continent that are are making uh, decisions and offering products and services and and hiring people that that have amazingly positive consequences uh, for the future trajectory of, um, of the continent. Okay. And, so, uh, and so in terms of what goes into a, uh, a great story, right. a lot of times I like to you know, um, think about it through the lens of, of what we're doing at ALU. We talk about doing hard things here at ALU. Yeah. Uh, but the best stories are often the hard stories to tell. And what I mean by that um, is that... Um, if you think about the best stories that you like uh, hearing about or watching, um, whether they be through on the news or whether they be uh, in the theater, um, uh, there is usually a high degree of vulnerability uh, Ooh, yes, that goes yes, along yeah. with along with those stories. And a lot of people think, especially leaders, especially you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that vulnerability is often seen as a as a weakness. Um, if you're vulnerable, you're weak or you're soft. Um, but the reality is, actually, the more vul- when it comes to storytelling and leadership, the more vulnerable you are, uh, and the more vulnerable stories that you can tell, um, in many ways, uh, is uh, you know is is a sign of power and strength. Um, and so, 
I think that's the the challenge for folks is, is you know uh, you know anyone who wants to be a storyteller um, is to try to um, uncover the stories in your business, uh, in your life, uh, in the people in your organization um, that are the the um, that are the hard stories to tell. I like to say that if if this if the story if the challenge or the transformation of the hero in your story or the people in your story or the business you're talking about if that challenge or transformation doesn't scare you a little bit to tell or to talk about, um, then it's probably not going to be a compelling or powerful story. Um, you want to feel, you know you're telling a good story when before you press publish, um, you feel a little nervous about it. Like, am I revealing too much? Am I, um, am I exposing too much about myself? Right. Uh, and the reason I say that is that in many ways, a lot of people think great storytelling is about reflecting on your own life uh, or your own experience. But the reality is the best stories out there are actually a mirror to your audience, a mirror to the world. Um, if you think about the stories that, uh, Savannah, that you uh, appreciate the most, they're the ones where you actually see yourself uh, in the midst of that story. Great. And so that's what I really encourage people to do is, is um, you know, be vulnerable, uh, you know, be brave, um, and uh, and and at the end of the day, if you do both of those things, you'll provoke uh, some pretty amazing stories that uh, not only start uh, new conversations, but maybe change the conversation uh, that uh, that needs changing. Wow. Okay. Um, so speaking of vulnerability and in telling um, compelling stories, in just four months, uh, COVID-19 has spread in over 177 countries with cases almost at 800,000 and over 2 billion people in lockdown. What do you think um, on the way, what What are your thoughts on the way different leaders around the world have handled the crisis? Well, it's, it's a very important question, Savannah. And um, First, as challenging as this entire situation is, and it's an unprecedented situation, um, uh, uh, I've actually been very impressed with the compassion, preemptiveness, uh, uh, and uh, efforts of the uh, the business and the education community. Right. Um, there are hundreds of examples of companies, both large and small, um, that have uh, directed their employees um, to work remotely um, and that are offering um, uh, supplemental compensation and, and healthcare uh, benefits and refusing to lay off those uh, uh, employees, um, not because the government is mandating it, uh, because they're they're staying true to their purpose. They're staying true to their mission. Right. Um, companies like Starbucks, who I used to work for, mm-hmm. um, is doing that. Microsoft, um, the list goes on. There are also many companies that are going, that are looking outwards beyond uh, their own employees and are looking for ways where they can use their scale, their financial resources, their expertise, um, their innovation uh, as a force for good in the broader community. Google's a great example of that. Just this week, they announced a $800 million commitment um, to help small businesses um, and healthcare workers through a combination of of ad credits for their uh, Google search advertising, yeah. as well as direct cash uh, cash support. Mercedes-Benz, I just read uh, the other day, um, uh, asked their luxury car engineers um, to turn away from designing cars for a little bit and design a next-generation respirator. 
they ended up doing it in 100 hours. Wow. So you had luxury car engineers um, who used their um, their amazing uh, mechanical and innovative minds um, to go from again designing luxury, some of the best and most um, uh, you know elegant luxury vehicles in the world, right. um, to designing a life-saving next-generation respirator. And it's not just large businesses, it's small businesses. Um, there's actually a small luxury handbag designer in New York called Atelier. Okay. Um, it was actually founded by a former colleague uh, of mine, Stephanie Sarka. Um, she, uh, she's offered to um, turn her handbag uh, factory in New York City, which is the epicenter of, um, of the virus in New York or in the U.S. right now, um, to offer up her fact, hand, uh, handbag factory uh, and the sewers that work there um, to start making uh, start making medical masks. So again, here you have a organization, a small startup that's only two years old, yeah. um, and just trying to get its footing in the midst of a crisis that, under any circumstances, would probably put them out of business. Um, and she's stepping up and offering, uh, you know, her factory, her resources, uh, her team uh, to uh, help in this help in this crisis. Wow. Okay. So um, while the governments in their own ways are trying to help small businesses and entrepreneurs in this time of crisis, um, what would be your advice to our listeners on how they could respond to COVID-19 or any other crisis for what it is? Well, at first, um, I would say uh, stay healthy. <laughs> Definitely, um, yeah. You're not helping anyone. You're not, you know, no matter how heroic you might think you are as a leader or as an employee, um, you're not helping anybody by, especially yourself and your family, um, by uh, not following the um, uh, the safety guidelines being requested by governments and world World Health Organization. So, um, so stay home, um, stay healthy, um, and next, stay connected. Um, this is a fantastic opportunity for people to um, to reach out to people, family members, and others that they may not have talked to uh, in a while. Yeah. Um, um, it's important to stay connected with those that, that are on your team and that those that you regularly work with, yeah. um, with your boss and your direct teams. Um, but don't forget about those um, that uh, you've maybe neglected to talk to um, over, over time. They could be um, friends that you haven't talked to, uh, family members. Um, I had uh, not talked to my parents in, uh, in a few months and just talked to them uh, this weekend, and it was it was it was uh, it was great. Wow! <laughs> um, and so um, it, it's sometimes you know I, you know this is a horrible situation, but on the other hand, I do think there are some amazing uh, rekindled relationships um, and even new relationships that are um, going to be started out of this. Um, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to reach out to that that uh, that person on your team that you maybe walked past in the hallway or or sat at a different table. Uh, next to in, in the cafeteria and to just reach out and, and um, say, I know we didn't really talk much um, uh, around the office, but I just wanted to check in and make sure you're okay. It, it's a, uh, so stay connected. Um, and if you're a leader, um, do it in a, uh, do it frequently with your teams, um, do it in an empathetic way uh, and do it in a transparent and honest, uh, honest, uh, honest way. Um, and finally, um, take care of your employees uh, if you're a leader or or um, or whether you be on the political side or the government side uh, and your community. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a defining moment um, for companies uh, and leaders of, of all stripes. Um, when we come out of this, 
uh, I really do believe that companies' brands uh, and leaders' reputations uh, will be defined uh, by how they responded to this uh, to this crisis. Um, you may have, uh, um, I like to say that it's easy to lead in good times, right. uh, but in challenging times like we're facing right now, um, uh, you'll find that true leadership uh, really reveals itself in very powerful ways. Very true. Well, Jim, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate the little gems that you've dropped um, for us today, talking about the framework. We've talked about, uh, you know, how to craft a compelling story and what have you. Uh, Yeah, we do appreciate the work that you do for us here at AOU. And I hope that the advice that you've given us sort of um, spills over after crisis and even beyond. So, yeah, thanks. Thank you, Savannah, for having me on. And I wish you, your family, and uh, everyone listening uh, good health. Thank you so much. All right, then. 